From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, public health authorities around the world, including the World Health Organization, were telling people that they could adequately protect themselves from catching the deadly virus by abiding by just a few measures. Appropriate hand washing, covering coughs and sneezes, and staying socially distanced. But Brisbane-based air quality expert Lydia Morawska, a physicist and distinguished professor at Queensland University of Technology, knew that this possibly wasn't enough to protect people from getting infected. Professor Morawska was instrumental in being at the forefront of a group of international experts who alerted the world to the very real and very dangerous airborne transmission of COVID. However, that journey to change the narrative of the pandemic from one of droplet transmission to one of airborne transmission was not easy. And it's part of the reason why Professor Morawska was named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. And I'm very honoured to now welcome Professor Morawska to the Tea Room. Thanks so much for your time. Hello, Francine, for inviting me. Firstly, congratulations on being recognised for your work. You were named alongside world leaders, the likes of US President Joe Biden, as being one of the most influential people in the world this year. That must feel phenomenal. Well, it felt very strange at the beginning, but I'm stressing all the time that while this is a recognition for me, but really this is the recognition of the significance of this topic, of this issue, which is airborne transmission of COVID-19 and in general airborne transmission of respiratory infections. So this recognition really puts this um, whole big um, topic in focus. Do you mind taking us back in time to when you first raised the alarm about airborne transmission of COVID and what the response was that you received at that time? Well, uh, if we go go back to what was the response and when I first, in fact, started working on this topic, which was during SARS-1 and all the, uh, what followed, all the years of research uh, into, into the topic of the particles from human respiratory activities on what happens with these particles in uh, indoor space, working on this uh, topic over the years with many other scientists. So seeing the statement at the end of March last year by the WHO that the virus is not airborne, well, this really um, made for me the full, the, the full realization that something needs to be done. Now, what was the response? Um, well, within three days, I organized this group of uh, initially 36 scientists. We contacted the WHO. There was an immediate response and we were engaged in conversation. But the problem was that not much has been happening. And therefore, we needed to do much more, which needs we, which means we needed to somehow publish this such that the whole world uh, is able to read about this and realize the importance. And this what made the WHO change the, uh, the recommendation. You had worked with the WHO for decades, I understand. Do you think it was outdated science fueling public health orders that were clinging to excessive cleaning protocols and hand washing, or was it wider politics at play? Well, this is very right. I've worked with the WHO for a very long time, but I worked with in a very different area of the WHO, and this is in relation to uh, to uh, airborne pollution. Uh, for example, I was uh, co-chair of the WHO air quality guidelines, which were announced in September, 
so 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 this is very different to infection transmission and i never worked with that arm of the who responsible for infection transmission so um so uh, this is the same organization but very different uh, areas of this organization now uh, working over the decades with who on air quality science was always the most important and this was always the basis for any decisions, for any recommendations, any guidelines, and so on. Therefore, I was very surprised that in the area of infection transmission, science was not uh, considered. Uh, why was this the case? Well, it's everything mixed into this. All dogmas, uh, all dogmas, uh, medical dogmas, which stated that if you had arms length from an infected person, you are safe, which is scientifically not uh, correct. There was politics, there was some other interests. So everything was entangled in, in this. And therefore it was not recognized by the WHO nor by um, uh, public health uh, authorities around the world. Why do you think there was such an entrenched resistance to accepting that COVID could have been airborne. I mean, the evidence was building up for quite some time and there was so much of it, some would say, yet it took what seems like eons for the World Health Organization and other bodies to finally get on board and accept that. Well, this is a, this is a very good question. Um, this The fact that airborne um, infections are transmitted uh, through, the, through the air the fact that this virus and viruses from respiratory activities are in the air is, um, well, it's something which by, by intuition people accept without even background in this. They come from our mouth, from our nose. That's why in the air before they're anywhere else. Uh, so um, why, as I said, why it was the resistance uh, since the initial statements were made uh, Sometimes it's very difficult for authorities to go back and do a 180 degrees uh, turn, saying, no, we were wrong. Uh, it is like this and something else completely different should, should be done. This is part of this. From the position of the um, national public health authorities, there's another aspect, namely that it's much uh, more difficult to um, do something about the virus in the air which means the building, the ventilation, uh, then telling people, well, you need to be distant by 1.5 meter or wear a mask, putting the responsibility of individuals. In the case of um, ventilation, of building uh, engineering, uh, the authorities need to provide some guidelines. So that's much more work. And in addition, this is not something which is within the responsibility of one, government department, but many of them. So it's really uh, all government approach which should be taken. So the um, the area of health, Ministry of Health, let's put it this way, should um, announce that this is a problem, health problems. But then in terms of taking steps by this, for example, when we are talking about the schools, then it is the Department uh, of Education which is responsible. When we are talking about the offices or healthcare facilities, there are many different departments. So that's another complexity and different departments of the government don't necessarily easily work together. So as, as you can see, there are lots of many different things which complicate the issue and just telling people what's their responsibility 
it was easier. I imagine that that experience though was quite frustrating for you as someone who knows the physics so well in this area. Why do you think that there wasn't an assumption made from the beginning that it was airborne, given that it would have required taking so much more care from the very start to reduce airborne transmission? It seems a bit funny that when we didn't know much, there were still assumptions that it couldn't possibly be one thing and it was most definitely the other without further interrogation. How did you find negotiating that space? Well, you were you use the term frustrating. It was to me it was much more frustrating. It was more like desperation because knowing that the uh, virus is spread through the air and knowing that if people are not aware of this, if no steps are taken to uh, control airborne transmission, that simply will be many more cases. There will be many more deaths. So, so as I said, it's it's much more than 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 frustration. Um, so pushing this, uh, it was something like I felt my responsibility. Something really needs to be done to uh, to protect people, to protect from cases, pro- protect from deaths. In more contemporary times, you've recently called on Australian authorities to work towards improving indoor air quality as part of the move to live with COVID and alongside other strategies such as vaccination. Could you tell us a little bit about your work in this? Well, um, in parallel to uh, my work or our work in um, uh, discussing this with the WHO, uh, by myself or with colleagues from various areas, we've been uh, trying to persuade the, the Australian federal authorities as well as the various state authorities to take any actions on this. That was since... Uh, August last year, uh, initially with very limited success, but gradually this year, over the last few months, uh, the situation started changing. And as we've seen um, in different uh, states with different speeds, things started moving on. So in particular, Victoria first announced uh, in September a package on uh, mitigation of airborne transmission in, in schools. Then New South Wales started started talking about this uh, as well, again, in relation to schools. So this conversation started, um, but it's still nowhere near as advanced as it should be. And uh, other states should take care and discuss this in terms of uh, the context of schools. But schools is not the only uh, um, indoor space which should be taken care of. All indoor shared spaces should be protected. And this discussion really hasn't started yet at all. So there's much, much work, more work which needs to be done, particularly since we are, well, in the next few weeks, um, since the end since the end of this year, we'll be leaving with COVID as all the states are announcing the timelines for reopening. So we'll be leaving with COVID. So if we don't take this on board to protect people from airborne infection, by improving uh, indoor air quality in general and specifically focusing on infection transmission. But again, there will be more cases, more deaths. I imagine that one of the features of struggling to have health authorities accept the evidence of airborne transmission and what that means, part of it was that it is a wildly expensive problem to deal with once you accept that as, as being the state at play. 
What do you see as the role of designing for the future in terms of codes for building disease-safe offices and public transport and hospitals? And do you see that as really being the future for mitigating spread of disease, not just for COVID, but to ensure that we're safe in potential future pandemics? Well, there are several aspects of this question. Well, widely expensive. We are first. We are talking about the situation now during the pandemic, and during the pandemic, which we we should do whatever is possible, and that whatever possible is not necessarily expensive. We need first of all to find out whether there is a problem, whether it's a school, whether it's an office, whether it's a restaurant, whether there is a problem with ventilation, and measuring uh, or assessing this. It's not that expensive using uh, carbon dioxide monitors, which are not that expensive. And this immediately tells, tells us, is there a problem or there is no problem? If there is a problem, see what you can do to improve this. Opening the windows, if you can, helps improve mechanical ventilation if it's uh, in place. So there are many steps which can be taken uh, immediately and they are not that expensive. But still, we are talking about uh, what I often compare to the situation of a uh, leaking ceiling during a storm and pu- putting a bucket under, underneath. We are doing this now. But in the longer term, we need to design our buildings in a way that they would protect us, first of all, from everything which is generated inside, including the viruses or bacteria, from anything which potentially comes from outside, uh, remember, two years ago at this time, uh, the, we had big problem with bushfires and big part of the country was affected by the bushfires. So then we should um, do the opposite what we do during the infection um, uh, transmission. We should close up the buildings to make sure that nothing uh, or as little as possible comes from outside. So our building should be able to do both uh, and be flexible. Uh, about this, also, of course, ensure um, appropriate thermal comfort and do this all with as little energy as possible because buildings already consume a lot of energy and we can do it much better to consume less energy. So really, in the future, uh, that's what our that's how our buildings should be designed and operated. And we have technologies for this, so it's not that we uh, don't know what to do. Now, widely expensive, um, well, how much, um, let's think how much this pandemic costs. Think how much epidemics of anything, of uh, uh, seasonal flus and other respiratory infections cost. So it all costs and costs all every year by year all the time. Now, in um, investing in proper building design, and doing this with time, we are not saying that let's retrofit everything uh, or the buildings by next year. We should put time to, uh, sort of process in this. So from now on, we'll be better designing buildings. So with time, let's say next 10 years, 20 years, buildings will be, most of the buildings would be already much better. So it's not something, the cost of this will not be immense, not at all. It will be just done better, but the savings will be immense. Are you a little bit concerned about the fact that when it was touted that people should believe in the droplet transmission of COVID, there was such a focus on hand washing and cleaning surfaces and making sure that you were staying at home. Now that we're living with COVID and we know that there's aerosol spread, 
Are you concerned that there's not the same focus on ventilation and of being indoors with other humans in the same way? I mean, limits, for example, in New South Wales have just lifted in indoor settings as of this week. But at the same time, I personally don't really see a big push on, you know, open the doors and windows if you can dine outside. Do you see that there's still a bit of a disconnect going on? Well, it's not a little bit. There's a huge disconnect because still most or or no state authorities have added this recommendation uh, for ventilation and for controlling airborne transmission to their uh, range of uh, mitigation measures. So so this hasn't really changed much. So on the peripheries, there's talk about this. There's a little bit of talk about the schools, but not in general. So, so this is a big, big worry. Uh, because if uh, well, we know what it will lead to if it's not taken care of, which means, as I said, more, more cases, uh, more deaths. But also, if we don't take this issue on board now, while we are still uh, living through the pandemic, not much will happen after uh, the pandemic, which means we will continue living with this problem for years to go, and still enduring the cost, the suffering of um, all the respiratory infections which could be prevented uh, or minimized if we have better ventilation measures, better indoor air. And when next pandemic comes, which is only a matter of time, as we know from human history, we will be exactly in the same situation as which we were at the beginning of this pandemic. Professor Moraska, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on the program. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time. <laughs>